Well, welcome to another episode of Break Away from the Rat Race. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Jay Connor. Jay has been buying and selling houses since 2003 full time with profits averaging $67,000. But, you know, from what I heard recently, it's more around the $71,000 kind of uh, profit that he's getting now. And he lives, he's doing this business in a town with a population of only 40,000 people. Uh, he rehabbed over 300 houses, has been involved in over $52 million in transactions. And for the past seven years, Jay has completely automated his, uh, his seven-figure income business to where he works in his business less than 10 hours per week. He raised over $2 million in private money in only 90 days. Uh, and he's also a national speaker on the topics of private money, automation, and foreclosure, and the best-selling author of Where to Get the Money Now, which is going to be pretty interesting. And at the and stay at the end of the podcast, because Jay is going to have something uh, where you can uh, provide a link where you can get his book or something for free. So stay tuned. Jay, welcome to the show. Well, hello there, Eric. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on here as your guest and to talk about my favorite subject, which is private money and private lending. So, Jay, yeah. So, when we uh, we spoke a little bit earlier, it's a population of forty thousand people. I mean, you did three hundred houses and all of that. It's like you're basically rebuilding the town. You own. Are you the mayor? <laughs> no, but I've been told <laughs> I should run. <laughs> well, exactly right. So. So what are some of the challenges and some of maybe the advantages of being in a small town and doing your business in that town? Well, let's start with the challenges. You know, if you stay like my population, total target market area is 40 to 50,000 people. I'm doing two to three houses a month flips. Now, I do creative financing as well, in addition to private money, but the majority of them are private money. Those that are cash and flips, averaging $71,000 per deal, doing two to three a month, that math works out pretty good. But one of the challenges of being in a small area, small population, is if you choose to stay in a small area, then that's going to limit the number of deals that you can do. But at 71 grand times three a month, then I'm, that's good enough for me, right? I don't feel like I need to branch out into other areas. Um, so that's the challenge. You're going to be limited to the number of deals that are available to do. The um, opportunity or the benefit to it is in a smaller area. You're not going to have nearly as much competition, if any at all, that are consistently in the business. And what I mean by consistently in the business, I say if you want to be serious about real estate investing, you got to have a plan and a system, a marketing system that's bringing in consistently leads every day from motivated sellers. You're sure not gonna find the deals these days in the multiple listing service. Most of your leads are gonna come from what we call off market or for sale by owner sellers. So you gotta have a marketing machine in place that are bringing those consistent leads in. Um, and, and the benefit is you're not gonna have much competition to compete for those deals because most full-time real estate investors don't want to be like in a small area like this. Most of you real estate investors, you know, really want to be in that 250, 300,000, you know, plus population. But yeah. if you're in a small area, you can make it happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, for me personally, where I invest, I invest in MSAs, the metropolitan areas. 
that are around uh, 1 million to 3 million. That's kind of where my sweet spot is. I don't want to be too big because then I, I don't want to compete with these guys. And then uh, too small, I, I'm always afraid that I'm not going to have the uh, enough opportunities, enough deal really to sustain uh, kind of what I'm doing. And I'm doing about, you know, 20, 20 deals a, a month. So uh, we're buying 20 to 30 and then we're selling about 15 to 20 uh, a month. So we have to we have to have some volume. <laughs> But this is yeah, great. I mean, you got to have some volume because you might have a little overhead. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And my profits are also not $71,000 per deal. So maybe I have to re re uh, rethink my strategy. So, well, my guess is you might have some wholesale deals in those numbers. Yeah. And I, I don't have any wholesale deals in my numbers. I've never wholesale deal, a, a deal, a wholesale deal in my life. Mm -hmm. I've never had anybody to wholesale it to. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for me, so I, I stay a, in all my deals. Yeah, a quarter of my deals are actually from wholesaling. And then we have a quarter that uh, we still have half that's coming from MLS, believe it or not. And then oh, the wow. other half, the other half is kind of the, the other quarter is uh, is direct. So another 25% that's direct. So, yeah, but we have, we also have our own wholesaling company too. So that helps sure. a little bit. So it's just like, one part, one hand to the other hand kind of thing. So um, so you're still investing at the, at the same speed right now. And, uh, you know, I, what do you think about the real estate market, where it's where it's heading? How do you think your town is going to be impacted by, uh, you know, by the, the, the future of the real estate market, the interest rate, the inflation, et cetera? Well, I think the biggest impact on uh, us real estate investors is going to be the opportunity to buy a lot of foreclosures and bank-owned properties that have not been available since COVID. Because, you know, for the majority of this time, since March of 2020, there's been a moratorium mm -hmm. on uh, foreclosures. Well, all those moratoriums have been lifted as of just two or three months ago. Mm -hmm. So we're going to see a lot of opportunities to buy bank-owned properties, a lot of opportunities to serve people that are in foreclosure that are still living in their houses. So there'll be more buying opportunities, which makes it even more important to have all the private money and all the cash available for those types of purchases. As far as uh, mortgage rates, interest rates, and that kind of thing, as we've seen over the last few months, they've gone up at a pretty crazy rate and prices of real estate. You know, how do those two variables play in with each other? Well, it's gonna be sort of market specific. So for example, here in Eastern North Carolina, particularly in my area where I live, there's still no inventory in the multiple listing service as opposed to your area uh, mm -hmm. where you're investing, you're buying houses out of the multiple listing service. Well, mm -hmm. in my area, when something hits the market in the multiple listing service, it's gone because yeah. there's no inventory. Yeah. And even with the rise in interest rates, um, I've never seen, uh, Eric, so many all cash offers, all cash yeah. offers yeah. with no appraisal contingency um, ever before, as mm -hmm. I have in the last year. I think we'll continue to see that. I think part of the reason is there's more money and liquidity on the street than ever before, yeah. um, regardless of what someone's political affiliation is, it doesn't mm -hmm. matter. The fact is, 
the current White House administration has printed more money in the basement of the White House in its current administration since any other administration before. I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying it's a fact. There's so much liquidity out there. And, you know, when we borrow private money, we borrow a lot of private money from individuals that have retirement accounts in their self-directed IRA accounts. Listen to this number. Prior to COVID, there was $18 trillion in cash in people's self-directed IRA accounts that was available to loan to us real estate investors. Today, you know what the figure is? $31 trillion. $31 trillion in cash sitting in people's retirement accounts that can be self-directed and used as private money to us real estate investors. So that's just an example as to how much liquidity is out there on the streets. Prices of real estate, I think across the board, you're going to start to see them start to level out. Now, some people say we're in a recession. I'll give a quasi answer to that. Are we in a recession, generally speaking? Yes. Uh, Are we in a real estate recession? No. And I'll tell you why, but I'll tell you why it may feel like it in some places. Eric, as you know, over the last year, we've had across the board 20% increase in prices of real estate. That's unheard of and unprecedented. So now across the board, when prices of real estate are not going up 20% a year, but are going up five to 6% a year, that feels like a recession for real estate, but it's not. That's just getting back to normal as to what it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And same thing with the interest rate as well. And people are all panicking that the interest rate is 5%, 5.5%. It's like, this is what it should have been. It's just like it was abnormally low for 10 years and you get used to that. And now you just, oh my God, it's like 5%. 5% is nothing. The first house that I bought, I think I was paying like 13 or 15% interest. It was higher than normal, but it was, you know, I survived. I was able to make all my mortgage payments for some, you know, but uh, yeah, I mean, this is uh, 5% is still a low interest rate. There's no, uh, no reason to hit the brakes and then stop investing in real estate. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is very, very good. I mean, you're, uh, you raise a lot of money. I know that you raised like $2 million when you were over $2 million in 90 days when you were cut off from the bank. Um, uh, so w- t- tell me a little bit more about that story. I feel that there was, there's a little bit of a story in there that we need to know about and then how you raise the money. Sure. Well, I tell you, Eric, you know, it's during our challenges, our difficult times, when we are under pressure to figure out a problem, to figure out a challenge, that's where the growth takes place. That's where quantum leaps takes place. That's where we have huge blessings in disguise. And that's what happened to me in this world of private money. I just didn't wake up one morning and say, hey, I think I'll go raise some private money. Didn't work that way. So here's how it happened. Here's how it unfolded. And boy, was it a blessing in disguise. In fact, if, if it were not for this story, Eric, you and I would not even be having a conversation today uh, on your show. So here's yeah. what happened. My wife, Carol Joy, and I, here in East North Carolina, we started investing in single-family houses. I've done commercial projects as well. I've got a shopping center, 
free and clear and all that. But our focus has been single family houses. We started investing in 2003. From 2003 until 2009, the first six years that we were in the business, all I knew was local banks and mortgage companies to yeah. fund my real estate deals. That's all I knew. I had been in the mobile home business with you being in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, you've seen a mobile home or two. I was in the mobile home business. <laughs> That's some even in Silicon Valley. These mobile homes are everywhere. If you, if you pay attention, they're everywhere. <laughs> so I was in that industry for years and I knew if I ever got out of that, I wanted to get into single family houses. Anyway, from 2003 to 2009, I just used local bank funding for my deals. That's all I knew. Well, let me tell you something, uh, Eric. I remember it like it was yesterday. I picked up my telephone here in my office. And as a matter of fact, we still have landlines in North Carolina. Oh, yeah. What is that? So for, for the millennials out there, this is a telephone <laughs> uh, handset, probably connected with the wire to the wall. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I picked up my telephone and I called my banker whose name was Steve. And I've been doing business with Steve at the bank for six years. And I'm getting ready to have a conversation with him. This is January, 2009. I'm getting ready to have a conversation with him like I'd had for six years on many deals. I had two deals under contract. The profits were $100,000 between the two deals. And I'm getting ready to tell him about, you know, where they're located and the funding required and when I wanted to close. Well, I learned right on that conversation, Eric, that I had my line of credit had been closed at the bank oh, yeah. mm -hmm. with no notice. Just, I mean, it's gone. I didn't even know it was gone. My first thought when he told me that was, well, I sure wish I'd known that before I got these two houses under contract. Because in 2009, here in North Carolina, when you put earnest money down back then, you couldn't get your earnest money back. The laws have changed since yeah, then. Yeah. But back then, you put five grand down, you're, you're down and done, right? So anyway, so I hung up the phone and I sat there for a minute and I thought to myself, what am I going to do? And I tell you, I had a new mantra come to my mind that I'd never thought before. And I've said it to myself ever since. And that was, I said, Jay, it is impossible for you to fail unless you choose to quit. And I wasn't quitting. Quitting was not an option for me. So I thought to myself, well, what would Jesus do? <laughs> what, what did Jesus say? Well, that's what he said. He said, ask and you, and you shall receive. And I said, well, who am I, who am I going to ask for help in this situation? So I picked my phone back up and I called my friend Jeff, who lived in Greensboro, North Carolina at the time. And he was a real estate investor. I told him what had just happened at the bank. He says, well, welcome to the club, Jay. I said, what club? He said, the club of losing your line of credit at the bank. They just cut me off last week. I said, oh, so you and me are not the only people. This was 2009. Yeah. You recall what was going on oh, in 2007 yeah. and yeah. eight and nine. It's like every real estate investor <laughs> lost their line of credit if they had one at the bank. Yeah. And so Jeff asked me a question. He says, Jay, have you ever heard of private money? I said, no. He said, have you ever heard of self-directed IRAs? I said, no. He said, well, you need to learn about them because that's where you can get a lot of cash and really fast 
for your real estate deals. I said, okay. So I hung up the phone and I started researching and studying what private money is, where to locate it, how to get it fast, and how to be in control of your business. Because this world of private money, there's no application process. You're already approved as the real estate investor. So instead of the bank making the rules, it's us. It's us, the borrower, the real estate investor that gets to make the rules. And I'm going, wow, what a shift in that thinking. So I started teaching people what private money is. And I started teaching them about self-funded IRAs. I started that with my connections. I started that with my network, right? And so just by teaching people, I raised $2,150,000 in less than 90 days when I first started out. Today, I got $8.5 million, which in the real estate world is a drop in the bucket, but it's all I need. I got seven houses going on right now in different stages, you know, of the yeah. flip, of the yeah. rehab. And so uh, anyway, as a result, I've yet to miss out on a deal at all for not having the cash since I learned about private money in 2009. So it's been the biggest blessing I've had. Hey, look, my business tripled in a recession foreclosure market in 2009. It tripled my first 12 months when I learned about private money mm -hmm. because all the foreclosures were coming available. Well, the banks weren't loaning any money. So you had to have the cash in yeah. order to buy the bank owned properties or the foreclosures. So my business tripled because I had all this private money available. And since then, I haven't missed out on a deal. And I've been sharing with other real estate investors how to do the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. For us as well, I mean, it's been private money has been key. I mean, we also did some joint ventures, depending if we wanted to share risk on some deals or, or not. But absolutely, private money. We haven't, we have never used hard money lenders. We've never used, uh, we use banks on commercial deals. Mm -hmm but everything has been private money. And the other thing too, is that you have the relationship with, with the investor. It's possible, let's just say, it's possible to have a relationship with the investor and have a conversation and say, hey, you know what, this is like, uh, you know, the interest rates is uh, this, this is what's happening and stuff like that. And then you can adjust the interest rate. You can, uh, you, know, you can have a conversation with them. Uh, once you uh, you deal with the bank, it's very hard to have a conversation with them. They also have regulations. A lot of things are out of their hands as well uh, in terms of regulations and stuff like that. And we, we had a couple of uh, banks that were um, lending to our investors to buy the house and that would all of a sudden say, I'm sorry, I can't I can't lend on any more of your of your deals. And we're doing like 15 to 20 deals a month. And all of a sudden they say, okay, well, we can't have any new clients because the regulators said you're making too many, <laughs> you're making too many deals to this, this Martel family. And then I said, oh, what? No. And then we had to find alternative uh, banks and stuff like that. So yes, it's pretty uh, private money. I mean, I absolutely agree with you. This is, uh, this is the best thing that you can do well it puts you in the driver's it puts you in the it puts you in the driver's seat i mean you just mentioned right there eric that's one of the big benefits of private money there's no limit to the amount of private money and the number of private lenders you can have or where they can be i yeah. mean they don't have to be in your state they can be anywhere in the nation i got private lenders you know in 10 different states across the nation mm -hmm. and um again it's not the bank making the rules 
It's you, it's me, it's us. It's the real estate investor making the rules. We decide what interest we're paying. We decide the frequency of payments. We structure deals that we don't even make any payments at all. And we bring home a big check when we buy. I never take any of my own money to the closing table. Boy, if that isn't different from traditional lending, right? You always yeah. got to put skin in the game yeah. with traditional lending and hard money lenders. And um, I mean, mm -hmm. it just helps you sleep sleep better at night. <laughs> I think if you're getting started for some of our listeners that are getting started and trying to raise private money, I mean, you might still have to put skin in the game until you build a solid track record like, like Jay have with like 300 houses and all of that. People know him and then they say they trust him. So you don't have to, you know, people are going to be willing to invest and they don't expect Jay necessarily to have too much skin in the game on the, in that particular case. But when you get well, started, I think you may expect to put a little bit of skin in the game. Well, here's the deal. I have new real estate investors ask me all the time. They say, Jay, why would a private lender, which by the way, let's be clear, a private lender is a human being. We're not yeah. talking commercial, institutional or anything. It's a human being just like us that loans us real estate investors from uh, money for our deals from either their investment capital and or their retirement funds that they moved over to a self-directed IRA company. But anyway, a new real estate investor asked me, why would a private lender or an individual that I've taught about private money, why would they loan me money and I've never done a deal? And here's the answer. They will loan you money on the deal because, and here's a writer downer, if you don't pay the lender, the property does. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? Well, you see, I don't borrow and my students do not borrow any unsecured funds from our private lenders. Can we legally? We could legally, but we're not going to. We're not going to expose our private lenders like that. We collateralize every note with the property that we're borrowing money for. So in this world of single family houses, of course, private money works for commercial as well, apartments and et cetera, but we structure the deals differently. But for single family houses, you have a private lender or maybe a couple of private lenders that are loaning money for you to purchase. And if renovation is required, that particular house and the private lender or private lenders are getting a mortgage or a deed of trust, depending on the state that you're in, that collateralizes their note and gives them the legal right to foreclose on you if you do not pay them. Of course, they're not going to foreclose on you. If you get into problems, you're going to give them a deed in lieu of foreclosure. They're going to get the property and they're going to make just as much money, if not more, than the interest that you would be paying them. So again, why would a and here's the deal. Sometimes a new real estate investors will say to me, they say, Jay, I'm scared that I might screw over unintentionally my private lender. And I'm scared my private lender is going to lose money. That will never happen if you do three things right. And when you do three things right, first thing you do right is buy right. You better know your formula on what's your maximum cash offer going to be using private money. Secondly, if there's renovation involved, you better know how to estimate repairs or have a strong bid from your general contractor because it always costs more to renovate than you anticipate. Ask me how I know, right? <laughs> so buy right, 
estimate repairs correctly. And thirdly, protect your private lender and don't over leverage the property. Um, for example, my rule of thumb is I don't want to borrow more than 75% of the after repaired value. I didn't say 75% of the purchase price. I said 75% of the after repaired value. Therefore, that's going to give a nice equity cushion there. So in case things go awry, if the market starts coming down, you can lower the price mm -hmm. and get the home, the house sold. Your private lender is made whole. Everybody's taken care of and you still put money in your pocket. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's just very good. Yeah. So, yeah. So this is uh, for. Yeah. So uh, as the one thing that I want to say is that uh, once the way that the investor is protected is basically having this lien on the property. And then if something happens and then they have, you know, they have to uh, foreclose on the house, they could do that. But the advantage, of course, is that you have the relationship with that investor and you can talk it over. It's much better to be talking it over and say, you know what, let's do this. Let's do for us. We do a lot of uh, single family rentals. So we say, well, you know, let's do uh, we could potentially say to our investor and say, well, instead of doing this, let's just partner up on this deal and we'll split the cash flow or we, we do something like that until, you know, because we've run these scenarios and say, if all hell breaks loose, you know, what are we going to do with uh, with our private to protect our uh, private money uh, lenders? So that's uh, that's very good. Uh, well, and you know, real quick, Eric, uh, speaking of protecting your private lender, in addition to giving them the uh, deed of trust or mortgage, uh, we also name them on the insurance policy as the mortgagee. They mm -hmm. are the lender. You borrow money from a bank from real estate. The bank is named as the mortgagee. Yeah. The mm -hmm. private lender we name as the mortgagee. So in case there are any insurance claims, guess what? The insurance company makes the check payable to your entity that owns the house and also payable to the lender, the private lender. And they've got to sign off on that check mm. to make sure you're not screwing them over, right? Yeah, yeah. They got to sign off on that check before you deposit the check. We also named the private lender on the insurance policy in case we got any title issues down the road, they're protected as well. I've never had a title claim since 2003, yeah. but I'm not yeah. buying a property without it. Yeah, yeah. So tell me, uh, Jay, how many how many of these private money lenders do you have? Uh, what is the average amount that they're lending you? Uh, and then kind of like any kind of like turnover that you have in private money uh, lenders that are kind of like decide to invest somewhere else. And then they, maybe they come back later and stuff like that. That's an excellent question, Eric. And I'll tell you why. First of all, the first part of your question is how much money are they loaning you on average, each, each private lender. I got 44 right now. Okay. So the reason that's such a good question is that when a real estate investor is beginning in private money, you need to determine what's the least amount of private money you will accept from a private lender to invest with you on a deal. Mm -hmm. Well, some people's only got 10,000, 15, 20, $25,000. And quite frankly, I don't want to mess with that because my real estate attorney is going to charge me just as much to close a $20,000 deal as he is a $500,000 deal, right? But it's yeah. the same documentation and, and time and all that. So step number one, decide what's the least amount you'll accept. In my world, 
typically I'm not wanting to accept more than $50,000 from any one private lender. And the reason for that is I'm, I'm not going to be able to buy a house for $50,000 in all likelihood, but I can use $50,000 for the renovation. If I've got, you know, a rehab going on, I can use 50,000 for that in a junior position, a second position, collateralizing that note underneath the, the primary private lender. So as far as range goes, I have private lenders that have $50,000 with us. I have private lenders that have $750,000 with us and everything in between. I just had a new private lender come on three weeks ago with $300,000. Um, I had a new one come on the other day at $150,000. So everything in between. Mm -hmm. So when you cash out, they never want the money back. They don't want the money back. They say, no, can't you just keep the money? Can't you keep the money? <laughs> well, the answer is no, I cannot keep your money unless I have a property that I can collateralize your yeah. money with. Mm -hmm. So that's the range. You know, do they go income by and large? No. When you have a private lender, typically that private lender is going to be with you for many, many, many years. Uh, I'm thinking right now, the majority of our private lenders, like 80% of them have been with us for years and they don't plan on going anywhere. And I'll tell you why, or ask a question. Where in the world else can they get these kinds of high rates of return safely and securely? I'm paying my private lenders 8%. Sometimes we'll structure the deal where there's no payments at all. If they want payments, we'll pay monthly, we'll pay quarterly, but we pay interest only payments. And that's a win for the private lender. And that's a win for us. It's a win for the private lender interest only because they make more money. If we're paying principal and interest, we're paying down part of their investment amount. Therefore, they don't have all of their investments staying with us. It's a win for us because interest only payments helps your cash flow. Interest only payments are smaller than principal and interest. However, when you go to cash out on that property, you'll still be owing the total principal loan amount at the time of cash out. Yeah, so uh, same for us. I mean, we have very little uh, turnover on the on the private money lenders. Uh, normally, we just they basically want us to keep the money uh, and then to turn it over to the next next properties. Uh, we pay all our private money lenders. We pay them monthly interest only. So every month is a reminder that yeah they're making money with us. And um, so, and then, but they forget about how much money they lent us. They just get the check and then they just, they're happy with that. And um, so, yeah, so that, that, that's very good. So I, I would say like 95% of the uh, private money lenders are staying with us. Uh, Sometimes they back out, they get their money out in order to buy single family rentals from us. So it's kind of, uh, that's kind of interesting to see that we had a few, a few of our investors that large investors that that's what they did with us and they decide to go and get the, the single family rentals uh, another thing you mentioned is also i mean when you get money from a bank uh, they're in first lien position and then you want to get a private money lender to go on top of that in second lien position the bank won't allow that in most most banks won't allow that uh, but that's why I don't borrow. That's why I don't borrow from the bank. Exactly. So when you <laughs> buy, when you borrow from private money lenders, another advantage 
is that you can have one large investor do the first position, the lien, the first lien. And then you can have a second private money lenders come on top of that in second lien position for, for the repairs or whatever is needed. So, yeah. so that's another and advantage. We, I'm just going to say when we, I'm sorry, go ahead, Eric. No, that, that, that's what, that's all. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to say, and that's why there's this thing that's very, very important called total loan to value, total loan to value. So what is total loan to value? Well, as Eric was just talking about, when you have a private lender in first position and another private lender in second position, you want to add both of those loan amounts together. That's the total loan amount and divide it by the after repaired value of the property. And we still don't want that to exceed 75%. Here's a quick example. Now the numbers I'm going to use are very, very small. These numbers will not apply in California. I mean, in California, you can't even buy an outhouse for $200,000. But anyway, that's, a, that's not even the down payment. That was not even a <laughs> toilet. So anyway, so anyway, let's say you got a single family house with an after repaired value here in Eastern North Carolina of $200,000. Well, that's the after repaired value. Well, let's say I buy it for $100,000, which is very common. I buy houses that need rehab renovation at 50% of their after repaired value. So after repaired value is 200,000. Let's say I buy it for a hundred. Let's say the renovation is gonna be 35,000 just for conversation. Well, I can have a private lender in first position at $100,000, for example. So they're in first position at 100,000. I can have a second private lender in second position with $50,000. I'm adding 100 and I'm adding the 50,000 together. So my total loan amount from both private lenders is $150,000. I'm gonna divide that $150,000 total loan amount divided by the after repaired value of 200,000. There's my 75% total loan to value of those two private lenders in correlation to the value of that property. Exactly. And I think uh, if uh, any of the listeners are interested in becoming uh, private money lenders, I mean, this is what the kind of investor that you want to be working with. You want to have uh, Jay, is very, as you can see, is very prudent in how much leverage he is using against each property. And you make sure that our, the, his investors are protected. Um, so this is exactly the kind of situation you want to be in as a private money lender. Uh, so you feel that your investment is safe and secure uh, for multiple reasons, and that even if you have uh, the economy goes down or the real estate market crash and the property value goes down, then your money, your money is protected. All right. So this is very good. So, so is that, so this deal that you mentioned is hundred K and then 200 K after repair value. Is that a typical deal for you in uh, North Carolina? It was prior to COVID. No, yeah. <laughs> so our median, our median price prior to COVID was 225,000 median price for single family house here in our area. Today is 300,000. Oh, wow. Wow. And you're buying them at 50% of your ARV? If there's a if there's major renovation involved. You know, okay. here in our area, there's no inventory available. So if the house is in good condition, um, 
if they put it in the multiple listing service, they're going to be able to get full retail pretty, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So we still, but you know, we still buy what I call pretty houses that don't need much renovation. We'll buy a lot of them on terms, creative mm-hmm. financing, seller financing, subject to the existing note. Well, those people are motivated to be um, get rid of debt, to yeah. get some debt relief. Yeah. So we'll buy houses that don't need hardly any renovation at all. Here's my rule of thumb, Eric. When buying with private money or all cash, of course, that's the majority of the cases. It's been my statistics over the years after reviewing thousands of property lead sheets, information from off-market sellers, only 13% of those people will sell to me creatively. What do the other 87% require? All the cash. Cash. (laughs) Uh, That's why the private money is so important. But as I was saying, here's here's my rule of thumb. When I'm buying all cash with private money, and particularly if a renovation is involved, I'm going to cash out. I'm not interested in renovating that house a second time by selling it on terms or selling it on rent to own. But when I buy on terms, subject to the existing note, seller financing, whatever, when I buy on terms, it's very easy to sell on terms, meaning I buy creatively and then I can sell on rent to own or lease purchase, one of the same thing. That's the most profitable way to sell a house. It's about building long-term wealth because the longer you own that house and you got a rent-to-own buyer in it that's making all the repairs, the more profitable that property is going to be. So it just depends on how you buy, depends on how you want to sell. Yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, we are another topic I wanted to talk about is about automating your business. I think this is very, uh, very important topic um, as you grow your business and as you grow more and more, uh, do more and more transactions. I mean, you, a couple of things happen is that you are as an investor, you can't handle it and you start making mistakes and things start falling apart. And then uh, you forget about cash flow, and uh, you know, and that sounds like a voice of experience, Harry. <laughs> well, I know that I'm very. I studied a lot of uh, history and how people screw up. Um, so <laughs> so I try to avoid those as much as possible. But um, so, tell me about kind of like your automation. Kind of how are you automating your business so that you can only spend like ten hours a week on that business? Yeah. You know, one thing that a new real estate investor may easily forget is why do we get into real estate investing? Why why are we not Mm. doing what we were doing? Or why are we doing it as a side hustle? Or why are we being a real estate investor to whatever level in the first place? Well, my guess is your answer is the same as mine. We were looking for freedom. We were looking for wealth. We want to make our rules. We want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, with whom we want to do it, for as long as we want to do it, and create the vision of our own life. That's why we got in. We wanted to have the chance to not work 60 to 80 hours a week unless we just want to, right? So one thing that it's easy to forget, and I did starting out, as to why I got into this. Well, when I first started out, I was running around with my hair on fire, trying to do everything myself. 
keep the marketing machine on, having seller leads coming in, talking to sellers myself, um, and trying to do everything. And you just can't. You can't scale your business without building your team. So how do I automate this business and how did I? By building a fantastic team that actually runs it on automatic. So who are the team members that makes this greased machine run? And I'm actually in it myself less than 10 hours a week and blessed at more than 2 million a year in a small market. How does that work? Well, here are the team members. Number one, from a marketing aspect, acquisitionist. I've had the same acquisitionist for 15 years that negotiates with all of my sellers. So she knows exactly what to say, what to do, what information I need. The second piece of automation is you can't be running, running the, you need a very well-greased CRM software system, right? Customer management software. So me and my acquisitionist, we might go two or three weeks and we don't even talk at all on the phone. It's all communication on the internet in our contact management. So all of my leads for sellers, all of my rent to own buyers, they're all in one very good contact management system. And my acquisitionist, my lead manager, I have a lead manager that manages all the seller leads to make sure none of them fall through the crack and everybody's being followed up with. We have automation texting that text sellers in case we can't get up with them. We have nurturing campaigns that stay in contact with sellers if they won't sell to us today. The money, here's a, here's a writer downer, the money is in the follow-up. Mm -hmm. yeah. The money's in the follow-up because a seller that contacts us today, in all likelihood, I may not be putting a deal together with that seller today, this yeah. week, or next week. Yeah. Well, I got to have a system in place for staying in contact with them automatically. So acquisition. Secondly, marketing. We got to have the marketing turned on. So I have three different companies that do Google ads for me, done for you, totally hands off. They run it. They do it. And so Google ads are much more high quality leads than Facebook ads. And I run both. A Google ad, that means somebody's gone to Google and they've typed in sell my house fast, buy my house fast. They're motivated. They want to sell. Well, all I need is five leads from a Google ad, five to buy one house. Really? Wow. High quality. That's a good conversion. Wow. High quality. Now on Facebook, I need 20. I need 20 leads on Facebook because they were not looking for me. It's just my ad that showed up in the news feed and they responded to that ad. So it's my job. It's still my job personally my job to make sure the marketing machine is turned on to where I have consistent seller leads coming in every day. And that includes the multiple listing service. So my realtor, there's another important team member, has got uh, the automatic drip of emails coming to me and my acquisitionist of any new bank-owned properties, any price reductions in bank-owned properties, any short sales. All those come to us automatically from our realtor. The next team member is the real estate attorney. Now, our real estate attorney closes deals in North Carolina, but all my private lender loans, 
you still want to use your private, uh, your real estate attorney to prepare the closing documents, right? Because a title company or escrow company, they ain't going to prepare a closing package for your private lender, your real estate attorney is. And then, of course, you want to have a relationship with not only those members, but your realtor. Who's going to pull comps? Who's going to give me the value of a property that I'm wanting to make an offer on? I'm not relying on online resources. I want my realtor to give me my CMA, and I'm going to have my comparable market analysis on any property I'm making an offer on in less than 24 hours. So automation, CRM, team members, runs it on automatic. What about on the sale of the property on the selling side? So that the realtor handles that or? Yeah, so I don't wholesale deals. So if you're in the wholesaling business, you better have dispositions lined mm -hmm. up for your wholesale business to put that property out there to other real estate investors that are gonna take it down. In my case, I'm gonna sell properties one of two ways. If I bought it creatively and I'm gonna sell it on lease option or rent to own, my acquisitionist is not gonna put on her sell rent to own on that okay. property. Okay. So we just put an ad on Facebook Marketplace and it's gone like that. We'll really? put an ad on Facebook Marketplace in groups, yard sale groups, and, and the last one we did recently, in 24 hours, I had 71 people respond to my Facebook ad. No now, this way. is free. It's free. Yeah. It's free. You just put your rent-to-own house uh, that you got available in Facebook Marketplace. Yeah. Boom. Got to put pictures. Put yeah. nice pictures yeah. inside and out. Um, and if I'm going to sell it in the multiple listing service, of course, my realtor takes care yeah, of that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, this is very good. Well, so Jay, I mean, yeah, we ran out of time. Actually, we, you're a good conversationalist. Uh, so it was very easy talking to you. But uh, before we go, I think you, you, we had a little bit of a promise to our listeners that you had a gift for them. So tell us more about that. I do. I tell you, Eric, I am so excited about this new private money guide that I just finished writing. And mm -hmm. I'm going to offer it for free, absolutely free to your audience, and they can download it. And the name of it is Seven Reasons Why Private Money Will Skyrocket Your Real Estate Business and Help You Build Incredible Wealth. Anybody that wants private money on the fast track, never miss out on a deal because you didn't have the funding, you yeah. can download this right now mm -hmm. at www.jayconner.com. C-O-N-N-E-R.com forward slash money guide. That's Jay Connor, J-A-Y-C-O-N-N-E-R.com forward slash money guide. It'll put you on the fast track to private money. Okay, that sounds good. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for sharing that with us. And Jay, uh, yeah, so thank you for being a, an amazing guest. And uh, if uh, some of our listeners have a great story that they want to share, uh, make sure that uh, you, can you can ask me to be a guest on my podcast by going on martelleric.com. And there's a link in there to say, be my guest. And then you can fill out the profile and then we'll get, we'll get to you if you, have some, if you have a great story to share related to financial freedom, real estate, and uh, legacy for your children. So Jay, thank you very much. Thank you for being part of the show. Really appreciate it. Eric, thank you so much for having me on and God bless you.
Thank you for listening to Break Away from the Rat Race with your host, Eric Martell. If you want to share your story and experience with our listeners, please message us on Facebook at Break Away from the Rat Race. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast on iTunes.